Welcome to A Little Louder Now, a podcast produced by the Bridge Initiative and FI360 Project. I'm Tara McBride. In this episode, Alex and I speak with Robin Green, President and Head of Research at RG Ideas, an independent research and consulting company in the financial services industry. Robin also happens to be a former colleague and dear friend of ours. From the very beginning, Robin has charged ahead with a joie de vivre that had her destined for great things. A self-described bulldozer, we see Robin as a woman who drives hard toward her goals, refusing to let obstacles slow her down. But her edges are softened by an unyielding positivity and genuine care for everyone around her. Robin has been an inspiration for both me and Alex, and an example of how a woman can dominate in a male-dominated industry while staying true to the kind, uplifting person she is straight to her core. We're excited for you to meet Robin, so let's get to it. Here is our interview with Robin Green. I I do think everybody in Minnesota has a vitamin D deficiency, Mm -hmm. and we should be like (laughs) mandated vitamins at this time of year. Yeah, it would probably help everybody stay stay a little more positive. (laughs) Um, but anyway, well, I, I really appreciate you jumping on the, on the podcast for us, Robin. We really are excited about this one. So, um, why don't you just, we like to start kind of from the beginning, you know, who were you when you were growing up and did you always, like, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Was it, did you envision yourself in financial services or was it, were you on a different path and then somehow found financial services. Get, get, take us from the beginning. Lay down on the couch. <laughs> I'm going to stroke my goatee and take notes. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. You know, I've been I've been reading a lot about the Enneagram, and I don't know if you guys have studied your, your own pattern on the Enneagram and where you sit, but um, I'm an eight, and an eight in the Enneagram can be sometimes labeled as a bulldozer. Oh. And my mom said when I was six months old, she just decided to put the side of the crib down and let me come and go as I pleased because she was afraid I was going to kill myself flinging out of the, the crib. <laughs> I don't belong here. <laughs> but things to do. I was very busy. <laughs> so um, that's kind of who I am. You know, I for a while I thought I, I had worked in um, consulting at Deloitte for about 11 years. And I thought that it was the culture of Deloitte that made me such a driver and to overwork. Um, but th- I've come to realize with time that it's who I am. I, I like to work. I like to work a lot. When I was a kid, I thought um, my mom would say, someday when you grow up, you could be an airline stewardess and you could, you know, fly all over the world. And I I would say to her, are you kidding me? If I'm going to do that, I'm going to be the pilot. There's not a chance I'm going to be the stewardess. Um, I just, I can't get my head around. I have a hard time following. So um, I'm not, I'm not as good at following. <laughs> Never happened. Hey, Robin, I am, I'm not a good follower either. <laughs> yeah, I, I admire it and I, I want to do that, Alex, but um so initially, my out of high school, I believed with all my heart, the last thing I would ever do is have a desk job. And I didn't care what I did. Um, I would scrub toilets. I would, I, I just didn't care. I, I like to work and I want to work and I like to be with people. Um, so I, I went down the path of audiovisual media and I did photography and television production and kind of got my creative side going and I, and I enjoyed it. I photographed a lot of weddings. Um, but there's no money in that stuff. <laughs> yeah. So I picked up an HR job. I was working for a manufacturer company um, doing payroll and benefits coordination. And I really enjoyed it. I, I liked the idea of 
organizing my day around. In the morning, I always feel like I'm at the top of my game. So I, I can do tasks that require full attention in the morning. And in the afternoon, I could just be more social and walk around and talk to people and, and see what they needed and do more of an HR type, you know, human role. And that pattern of life really worked for me. And when I came to the Twin Cities and I was looking for work, because um, I'm from the woods, <laughs> the far north, um, almost Canada, it's a little town called Ely, Minnesota, the end of the road. Um, when I when I came down to the Twin Cities, I, I applied for a few different roles and positions. And, and when I, I met with people at Deloitte, they liked my HR background. They liked my creative background and they, they gave me a shot and I, I got hired on there and I stayed for 11 years working primarily in the retirement plan market, um, working with record keepers to a large degree. We did a little bit of plan sponsor search and selection sort of advisory work, but not much. Mostly it was working with record keepers and um, it's a man filled world in financial services, but retirement tends to have both male and female, a pretty good balance of, of both sides of the house. And I, I kind of found my spot and I built a passion for it. That's amazing. So I, I want to, before we get into the financial services part of it, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, the path that you took to get there. It's, it reminds me a lot of my own, which is a little bit crooked. Um, you you kind of explored different, I mean, what I would consider some very different industries before landing here. Um, you know, what did those other experiences teach you? What did you learn from trying trying different things? And you know, when did you know that it was time to try something else? Because I think a lot of people kind of get stuck in this idea, like once I'm on a path, that's my path, and I I have to stick with it no matter what. So what, you know, you tried some things, what did you learn from them? And when did you know it was time to try something else? Yeah. That's a good question, Tara. I, I always think it's, um, it's people who pick their path have such advantages. So I have a friend who's an actuary and she loves math and she knew she would do math. And she's so far along in her career because she knew in the beginning what she was going to do. Um, mine has been so crooked, <laughs> so mm -hmm. interrupted with fits and starts. I stopped for three years completely when I first had my first child, stayed at home with him, then had my second child, stayed at home with him. Um, and that, you know, for all women, and if men stay home with their children too, you get this kind of feeling in your gut like, oh my gosh, can I go back to work? Am I employable? Will anybody want me? And then you get in there and you're like, oh yeah, I'm good at this. <laughs> I do like to work. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think for, I would be willing to bet most people have a crooked path mm -hmm. and you just sort of find your way, but you do build on all of your experiences. So I would say every one of my experiences in television production, in photography, landed me a different focus in the corporate business world. So um, the people at Deloitte would always, my, my superiors and the partners that I worked with would always say, how come you're so comfortable sitting down with the president of Fidelity? Like, mm -hmm. why aren't you nervous? And I, I think it came from when I was on my creative side working with weddings and having to orchestrate all of these families to cooperate and, and look good and have a good time, that it just sort of honed my skill to walk into a room full of strangers and take charge and help them feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Um it, it directly translated. Right. Well, and then it sounds like your personality would be perfectly suited for HR. 
um, you know, explaining benefits and, and working with individuals to really it, for me personally, I find my benefits and the money and all, all of that, the HR part of the work that I do really difficult to focus on. And so to have somebody who is empathetic and who can guide me through that process without judgment is um, always a nice perk to uh, any job. Uh, shout out to Mary Beth for being so awesome yeah. um, at yeah. FI360. Um, yeah. But it just sounds like your personality uh, just generally has been really well suited to working with people. Do you feel that way? I hope so. Mm. You know, I, I tend to be, like I said, my my characteristics are sort of um, taking charge and controlling a situation, which can be very negative for a lot of people. Mm. So I work very mm -hmm. hard at being empathetic and, and stepping back and saying, well, maybe there's another way and it's not my way. And mm -hmm. I, I'm constantly doing a check on myself to hold back. It, like if I put my whole personality out there, I think I would... <laughs> Nobody would ever talk to me. I have to kind of hold back the energy so I don't overwhelm people. But how do you how do you check yourself? Like, what are the things that you say to yourself? Um, you know, how, how do you do that? Because I find that, you know, a lot of times people get intimidated by my personality as well. And I have a hard time holding holding that back, too. So what advice could you give to me? Hmm. So it's mostly looking at people and always watching the person that you're interacting with. Um, I've been called abrasive, um, yep. unkind, um, yep. ruthless. I'm not, you know, yep. I, I genuinely care. So it's, it's looking at the people and trying to interpret their body language and then adjusting accordingly and being very, I, I found being very honest about it and just say, you know what, I'm so excited about this. I'm having a hard time controlling my energy. Is there anything that you need me to do different? You know, and just being open to it. I, I, I can be way off the mark and I don't care if I'm off the mark. I'll adjust. Let's fix it. Huh. I love that direct that direct um, line to get to, you know, get to what is going on here. Like what's working, what's yeah. not. I love that you are very direct. You know, I'm excited. I have a lot of energy. You might have picked up on that. How can I work with you to make sure that this partnership is the most effective it can be. I mean, I really yeah. appreciate that kind of a direct correspondence with people. How do you balance that energy and that enthusiasm when you're corresponding digitally? I find that a mm. lot of times, um, and I, you know, I think that a lot, I think a lot of people would say, oh, millennials, it's not millennials. It's everybody in the workplace <laughs> gets stuck corresponding via email, via Skype or Teams or whatever direct message system is being used. And they're, they're hesitant to pick up a phone or to walk over to a desk. So, you know, how do you manage through that with, you know, your big personality and the way that a lot of people like to correspond? Do you just say, you know what, I'm going to pick up the phone here? Or, or do you have a trick for the way that you interact digitally that can help convey what you're feeling in a, in a way that is received properly, right? Like it's not, you, you know, there's a lot that can be lost over a digital mm -hmm. communication. So how do you convey that kind of honesty and candor over the, over the computer? So I do have a preference for phone, but mm -hmm. 
um, email and text messages is how we respond to each other. And those can seem abrupt and rude and direct. Um, so, for example, I'm working with a client right now in the insurance industry, and they don't really know me well. It's a new client relationship for me. And I might start it on a Monday morning and say, hi, guys, um, I hope you had a good weekend, which we all say, but I'll say something specific. I went downhill skiing with my son, who's 14 on Friday, and we had such a good time. I hope you had a good weekend as well. And, and just, oh, that's nice. I think sometimes we think that being professional means only only talking about business. Um, there's a There's a little bit of a balance of being a human being, not overwhelming. They don't want to know every detail. But a sentence that I'm a human and I have a son and I did something fun and now I'm ready to work. I love hmm. that. I love that yeah. there's no, um, that you're not hiding that you are human and that you have a family and a life outside of work. I, that is so great. Just you saying that as an introduction to an email, like on a Monday morning, makes me want to, it gives me energy and makes me want to share a personal anecdote too, so that we have a little bit more of a personal connection and then we can get down to work. I really, I appreciate that kind of openness and honesty. So speaking of your family, um, you know, you're, you're obviously a go-getter. You are, you said it earlier that you were categorized as sort of a bulldozer. Um, so you're obviously very driven at work and very busy. How do you, and you have three kids, right? Three sons? Three boys. Three boys, which (laughs) I mean, yeah, exactly. That's a lot. So how do you balance the, the work life with your personal life? And make sure that you're giving proper attention to both sides of it. Yeah, I think I fail at that often. Um, it, it's a never-ending dance of sometimes I'm very successful at that. Sometimes I'm feeling like I'm not giving enough to my family. Sometimes, you know, especially when you have a new baby. I remember when I first had my first son and I, I dropped out of the workforce and I stayed home with him. And then when I went back in, it was like, three years of nonstop. If I was at work, I wish I was at home. If I was at home, I wish I was at work. Mm-hmm. It's just always this torn between where should I be? And somehow I can't, and it probably was through mentoring and networking with other working women who had families, um, learning to say, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And when I'm here at work, I'm not forgetting that my family is there at home, but they're not what I'm doing right now. And it's, I guess men are good at compartmentalizing, mm-hmm. but I, I've really become masterful at putting them in their compartments and saying, I'm here and I'm all in. You're my topic right now, Tara. I'm just going to talk to you. Right. And everything else is going on hold. And then when I'm with my family, I try to do the same thing. The phone is down. Things are turned off. I'm not working. I'm looking at them. I'm spending time with just them. But, you know, I can't. I, I, don't always get it right. I just don't. Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, I think putting some borders around and some framework around each area helps helps with that balance and helps you to focus on one area or the other. You know, the phone situation being so fully accessible it can be a good thing and it can be a really dangerous thing. And mm-hmm. I definitely find myself putting my phone on DND and flipping it over so I don't get my notifications. Um, you know, when, when my daughter's up because, you know, she's, she goes to bed at eight o'clock or eight 30 and I have maybe two hours with her 
um, after work. And so do I want those two hours to be spent with my phone and her or just with her? So I think that's a really great, a really great point that being fully accessible, like we have control over that to a certain extent, right? Like we can say for the next hour and a half, this is my time with this individual and I'm not going to be distracted from that unless there's an emergency. So, um, so two things about that, that I think are really interesting. Um, first of all, I think that that applies whether you have family and children or not. Yes. Um, I always find with my staff, there are plenty of people who are either have made a decision not to have kids mm -hmm. or they just aren't on that path yet. I still think it's equally important. You don't have to make excuses and have a family as an, a reason to turn it off. You can say, I need this. You know, yes. I need to check out and watch Netflix or I need to spend time with my friends or I need to do yoga, whatever it is that you do. It's perfectly okay to just do that one mm -hmm. thing at a time. Yeah, no, I completely, I love that you pointed that out. You're just saying so many things that I'm into, Robin. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, truly, I've had staff who have said things like, you know, I can do that thing. I don't have any kids or it's not a big deal because I don't have a family. And I'm like, but it is a big deal. There are other yep. things that you have in your life that are just as important. And you know, having kids is, is important. And, and if that's what you choose to do and you're blessed and, and are able to build a family that you want, awesome. But if, if your family or the things that you want to dedicate your time to aren't children-based, that's just as valuable. It's just important. If it's just about you, like you said, if you want to go to yoga or you just need some time to reconnect with yourself, I find that to be incredibly important. So yeah. thank you for thank you for pointing that out because I do think it's it's we often look at people with kids and say how do you do it all, and mm -hmm. it's, that's not to suggest that um, that uh, it's not more complicated when you have children because of course it is, but there's still a balance factor that happens with people who don't have children. Yeah, they're balancing other things but they're still balancing life with work and trying to do it in the best way they can. So Alex, from your perspective, are you all in on work all the time or do you turn it off and take care of yourself? Oh no, I, I am notorious for turning my phone off and, and my computer goes off when I am done with work at 4.30. When I clock out, I am out. Mm -hmm. I, it, it, people know that they can call me but there is a distinct possibility that I may not answer. But <clears throat> I thought it was really interesting that you, you two are talking about, you know, turning your phone off and, and, and not just, you know, for people who have kids, that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I was at dinner with a couple of my friends the other day, you know, two of which have kids, um, two of which do not. And, uh, you know, it felt like, there, you know, I, I make a point and, and I, I try to make a point when I go out with people to put my phone down, put it on silent um, or put it on vibrate in my pocket or something like that um, in case an emergency comes up. But mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I find it really irritating when, um, you know, people are constantly on their phones, um, like at dinner. Can you mm -hmm. just put your phone down mm -hmm. for you know, half an hour, 45 minutes while we're at dinner, you know, this is, this is our time to be away from the family um, and, and away from all the stress and, 
and work and, you know, other obligations that we all have um, and just be together as, as people and as friends. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's hard. I know my husband and I dialogue about it at all times. I, I would say probably every single day we talk about, hey, I'm talking to you. Put your phone down and look me in the eye because we're busy. Yeah. You know, we're tactical yeah. and we have a lot going on. But, you know, we're in the room together now. Let's be in the room together. Now. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It is. It is. You know, I, when I think about balance, I, I was talking to a friend about this recently that it's not like you. um I think of it less as like a seesaw, like work, life, work, life. It's not like that. To me, it's like a platter, a flat platter with a ball on it that you're trying to keep in the middle as best as you can because that's where quote unquote balance is. But it's just like rolling, kind of rolling all over that flat platter. So sometimes it's in like the personal care area and you're giving yourself some attention there. Sometimes it's with family. Sometimes it's with work. Sometimes it's with parents. You know, it just kind of is always moving around. It's very fluid. It's not just like a back and forth and back and forth. So I think just kind of having a little bit of um, forgiveness for ourselves to um, not like to understand that keeping the ball right in the middle of that disc is nearly impossible. And you just do the best you can every day. And like you said, Robin, sometimes you fail at it, right? Like sometimes Mm -hmm. you're, you're just not great at it, but you learn lessons and you move on and try to apply what you've learned later. Um, You know, um, my, my best friend, uh, she has been married for 10 years this month. Um, when she first um, came back to the U.S., her husband was a Marine. They were, they were stationed in Japan for three years. Um, you know, we were talking about our relationships with, you know, the guy I was seeing at the time and um, her husband. And she explained something to me that has stuck with me for, forever. And <clears throat> I was struggling with, balancing my relationship with my familial obligations and she told me that relationships no matter if you're talking about like romantic relationships or friendships or even balance between you know work and life they're never 50 50 it's always it's always a give and take and it's always going to be fluid and sometimes you know the other person can give you 70 percent but you can only give 30 percent to the relationship but that's always going to change. And, you know, sometimes you're going to give 70% and they're only going to give 30%. Um, and I just, I thought that was so profound and um, it made me see things differently. And it's made me take um, a different look at all of the relationships in my life, whether it was friends, uh, boyfriends, um, work, whatever. Yeah. That's pretty great. Yeah. And it's good to have friends who, have that kind of insight that they can share. I I just feel so lucky to be able to talk to so many people who kind of have the same perspective on life and are able to remind me of what I share with my friends when I, because I have a tendency to be less forgiving of myself than I am of my friends or family. And so it's just really good to have people in your life who are able to speak up and say, "Hey, you know, this you don't have to, you know, crush it, hustle hard, boss babe, winning every (laughs) single day, every moment of every day. Like there's, it's okay to stumble a little bit and, um, and completely fall down on your face and then just get back up and and keep on going, but forgive yourself just as you would forgive me 
I just think it's really, it's good to have those people as touchstones in your life. So um, kind of tangential, staying on the family front, uh, Robin, you know, you said that you took some, some time off and substantial time off, I would say, um, when you had your first two boys. So talk a little bit about the cho- like making, first of all, making the choice to spend those first three years. Is, am I understanding that right? Like you were, you were off for yep. about three years. Correct. So how did you come to that choice? You know, what, what was the process that you went through? Did you feel confident in that choice? Did you regret that choice? And then what was it like to come back into the workforce after three years? So making that choice was easy for me. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in the world I wanted more than to have children. It was like, like mission number one is I, I want to be a mom. Um, that's been my, my life goal. Even when I was a little girl, I just couldn't wait to be a mom. I've, I've always wanted, and I did, I waited until I was 26 to have my first child. So mm-hmm. I was just so over the moon, happy to have him in my world. And then the second one, just over the moon, happy to have these boys. And I thought there's nothing I will ever do. That's more important than raising my children. It's all good but nothing will be more important than that. And what I found is that I'm a better mom when I'm working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I am, I'm a, the, bless the hearts of those that can stay home alone. It was too hard for me. I felt too isolated, too needy for when my husband came home to have adult conversation. Um, I, I think it was good and I value that I had the opportunity to do that, but it just wasn't right for me to stay home with my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and I, I I feel like when I talk to them now, my oldest two are 23 and 24, and they are like well balanced, self sufficient, healthy contributors to the world, and that's that's what I wanted them to grow up to be like know how to be happy in the world and to make it a better place. Um, and I think once I went back to work, it was great that I was home with them. I kind of made them accountable for their own happiness. I made them accountable for here's how you can do things, but you got to make that work for you and you got to figure it out because you're a whole person detached mm-hmm. from me. And that's a hard thing as a parent to understand that, that it's not about you. They are a whole person of their own. Um, I was just a better mom when I went back to work. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. I, I have to work. I just, I feel like it's in my DNA. My mom worked, my grandma worked, you know, mm-hmm. every, everybody in my family worked and, and, you know, I, I try to make sure that my daughter knows that, um, her life is hers and, um, you know, for, she's only eight. So I'm not at the point now where I'm like, fly little Eagle, you'll be great. Right. <laughs> but I do want her to know that, um, as long as she's making choices that are healthy and that are the right, like they're, they're on the right path and that they're not, um, they're not going to hurt her in any way or harm her in any way that, that, that her choices are her own and that we'll support her and um, yep. be there for her. And so, you know, if, if me being a working mom is something that inspires her and something that she wants to do awesome, if it inspires her to want to be home with her family yep. instead, that's awesome too. I would not take any offense to something like that. So, yep. um, that's you know, good. The yeah, the point of them kind of being their own humans. It's a hard one to to get to that conclusion, well, but it's important. I remember my middle son in sixth grade. We went to school conferences. It was his first year in middle school, and we were at his math um, teacher in the in the room talking to the teacher, and she said, "What are you doing that this kid is so diligent with his homework?" Mm. 
like, what are you doing as a parent? Because I want to help other parents do that. And I said, we're not doing a thing. We literally told him, you choose who you want to be. Do you want to follow through or do you not? Do you want to get your homework done or not? I mean, you're going to be who you're going to be. Make your choice. What do you want to do? And he does it. Like, we didn't nudge. We didn't, we've never nudged our children on homework. It's who, what are you going to do? It's all going to impact you. It's your life. Right. And that maybe is a lot of pressure for a small kid. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> hey, it sounds like it <laughs> But it worked. They all were, you know, they, they get themselves up. They would go to school. By the time they were in sixth grade, they all had their own alarms. They got on the bus by themselves. I, I always worked my career out so that I could be physically here in the mornings when they were going to school. I like to be here in the morning, but I didn't manage it. Like they're managing themselves. I'm here as backup. Yeah. I'm here to support you, but I'm not doing any of it for you. Who do you want to be? Right. That. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, well, it ends up being better for you both. Oh, my I have, gosh, yes. I, I have friends who, who for what, you know, I, I, I love them dearly, and they're making these choices based on a lot of other contexts that I don't need to give here, but they are – they are doing more for their kids than we did for our daughter at the same age. Um, and they're starting to pay for it right now. And, and they're looking mm-hmm. at me and CJ and saying, you know, was your daughter this way when she was this age? And, you know, we really don't like to give out advice, but if somebody's directly saying, what can we do differently? We're going to tell them like, you need to let go a little bit, let them be upset you know, they mm-hmm. don't need to get everything that they want. Um, and, you know, it's not too, it, I just don't think it's ever too soon to say you're big enough to do that. Like whatever that is, you know, you, you don't need me to spoon feed you anymore no. to do it. That's right. You know, my daughter. And to tell them they can. I mean, you right. build their self-esteem and their you're confidence able. and their ability to make decisions by saying, I know you can do that. You've yeah. got this. You are able. I, yeah. you know, my, my mom never, I mean, she, I've talked a lot about how inspiring my mom is to me. She's just a, she never stops. Um, and you know, that makes me want to work harder and be better, but she didn't spend a lot of time with me, you know, coddling me, I guess is one way to put it, or specifically trying to build up my self-esteem and I was the type of child who um, was really f- felt very introverted and very embarrassed whenever I made any sort of misstep, even if it was just perceived. And I, I mean, any little thing would knock me down emotionally and would kind of make me turtle and make me withdraw into my shell. Yeah. So I see some of those characteristics in my daughter, and we've spent a lot of time, particularly this year talking about effort and um, not worrying about making mistakes and that who cares if so-and-so says something like, you know, you can't read, you can't read very well. Like, is that person a teacher? Is that person a counselor? No, they're just another kid. Then who cares what they have to say about it? You know, it's none of their business. And she's really starting to get the idea that, um, you're never going to make progress if you're not if you let fear of failure stop you. And mm-hmm. that sounds like such a grand concept, but you know, when she's on a basketball team for the rec center and we set, we say to her, you don't have to score the most points, but you need to take shots and you need to be aggressive and you need to get your hands in there and get that ball. 
you know, those are the things that are tangible that she can understand that I feel are going to translate into, you know, you can fail at work. And as long as you own it and you try again and, you know, fix whatever it is that was a failure, that's okay. Like failure is not a bad thing. It's letting failure stop you from continuing to move forward. That's where, that's where the things are. I remember when I had gone to college, I, I, I was with a, a woman who was maybe five years older than me. She was very untraditional at that time to come back to college. But she said, you know, there are two types of people in this world. Well, clearly there's a million types of people. But she said there are problem solvers and there are problem causers. Mm. Now, when you make mistake, do you want to be a problem solver or do you want to be a problem causer? Because mm-hmm. your actions are going to do one of those two things. Yeah. And that kind of stuck with me is in any situation, um, own it. I did something wrong or I made a mistake or I didn't see all the the parameters and, and the impacts of some of my choices. I'm sorry. Here's how we can go forward to make it better. How can mm-hmm. I make it right? And always looking forward, not, I'm not going to beat myself up. I've never been a super regretful or um, remorseful person. I just look at, can I make that better? Can I use that situation to improve myself, to make things even better for somebody else? And that method has made me very successful mm-hmm. in business and in my own store too. I own a, I own a little bridal boutique in Blaine. And when people come in and there, there are always going to be problems of some sort. I'm always looking at what can we do to make this right? Let's make right. it right. Let's just, let's just solve it. And I think people are always relieved by that approach Mm -hmm. rather than who's at fault. Where's the blame? It doesn't matter. Let's solve this and go forward. Yeah. That's all anybody really wants. And anybody I feel like who's um, harping on the blame point is they're in it for something else. Like they're, they're, there's something emotionally that they're um, trying to process. um, Yeah. Completely, it's way beyond whatever that particular issue is. If you're in it to just kind of, like you said, just make it right, then everybody can get on board with something like that. Like who, like, like you said, who cares who's at fault here? As long as that person recognizes and owns the mistake, but then is willing to help yeah. remedy it, then let's just focus on that. Why not? So here's a very simple um, story of how I how I want to live my life and who I want to be. So I do have this little bridal shop in Blaine. Mm. And we had a bride come in who was probably the only bridezilla I've ever had since we've had the store. She came in and she was just kind of angry and she'd throw dresses on the floor, which to me breaks my heart because I bought every one of those dresses. Um, And she, she was angry. She was mean to my staff and she came back like four times before she made a purchase. And one of my staff would literally leave the building if she saw her coming. She's like, I got to get out of here. I can't be here. And she bought her dress. She did it opposite of what we recommended ordering one in. She bought one that was way too big that needed to be sized down. She was a problem with the seamstress, always fighting and angry with the seamstress. And at one point I went into the room with her. I closed the door and I looked her in the eye and I said, what is going on? Like every time you come, you're so upset. And she looked at me and said, here's the thing. Two months before this process started, my twin sister committed suicide. And I get huge anxiety every time I start doing this. And this is the only store where no matter how I behaved, you operated with problem solving and love. Always love, even when I was impossible. She said, so I want to give all my business here. And I know I'm difficult and I'm trying not to be. But thank you for, for just being consistently caring. So you just never know what what 
what burdens people are carrying. Yeah. You don't know. It's true. true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, I, you, and it's really easy and convenient to go straight to that person's a problem and I don't want to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I've mm-hmm. certainly found yeah. myself doing the same thing. But you're right. You don't know what else that person is carrying. And I will say, though, that managing people has really opened up my eyes to that because I don't, I don't manage based on the work solely. I, I have a personal relationship with my staff. Mm-hmm. I just I don't know that I could manage effectively if I don't at least have some sort of connection. And it, it, it was always clear to me when somebody was having a bit of a, a struggle or a dilemma or something, whether it was personal or work-related. And I, I hope that I was intuitive enough to say, hey, something else is going on. Let's talk. Like this mm-hmm. time, like especially our one-on-one time, this time is yours. Um, you know, if you, if you want me to take action on what we discuss, then we can talk about what that action will be. If you don't want me to take action, but you just want to like blurt it out and have it out on the table and have somebody know and then talk through it, that is something that we can do too. Um, and I do feel like I learned a lot about the burdens that people are carrying and trying to work with them on how do we manage this in the workspace? How do we make it so that you can still be productive at work without, you know, feeling like you're lo- like ignoring a piece of yourself, um, but recognizing that work still needs to get done? Like, how do we how do we process that and move to yeah. a point where you can be productive? It's it's challenging, but I do find it very um, rewarding to make those connections with people and help them through. And I do think that they, they look at that kind of a situation, just like your bride did, where it's like, I have an enormously painful burden that I'm carrying. And I'm, I, every time I come in here, I am reminded of how my, my twin sister is not with me anymore. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. that's difficult. That's really difficult. Um, Let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about your work in financial services and particularly as a woman. I would really love to hear about what your experience has been like with the work that you do. Um, Do you feel like being a woman in this industry (laughs) has had any, like, what kind of impact has that had on your work? Do you feel like it's been an asset, a liability, a mixture of both? And, you know, how do you see the the industry shifting and changing at this point? Yeah, such a good question. Financial services has been dominated by men, especially when you look at the advisor marketplace. It has Mm -hmm. been a man's world. There are women out there making it successful and doing a great job of it. But we, you know, it just has historically been a little bit more cutthroat, a little bit more aggressive of a a type of work that um, men succeed at. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say one of the advantages that I found early on when I when I started working at Deloitte was my name is gender neutral. The name Mm -hmm. Robin um, could be a man's name or a woman's name. And I actually think in, in email communication, responding to clients or seeking out new clients and business development, it served me really well. Uh, for people not to know initially that I was a woman. And it ha- it happened many times that they were caught off guard that I was a woman. Like I walk in the room after we've been working electronically or I get on the phone. Yeah, Alex, you've got the same thing. Yeah. That's exactly why my mom decided on my nickname of Alex. I mean, there's a hundred different nicknames that you could go from Alexandra, but she specifically 
made sure that nobody called me anything but Alex mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of that. Which so is, is a commentary all in of its, all, all in of itself, you know, just saying that, oh, I, I was lucky because my name was gender neutral and that kind of gave me an advantage or caught people mm-hmm. off guard when they would meet me. That, that we could have a whole podcast about that. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you think about how far women have come and, and I'm a mother of three boys. I have three brothers. I have always been in a boy filled world. I've always been successful in a man filled world, but I've had amazing female mentors in my life. The partner I worked with at Deloitte, Stacy Sandler, she, I, I mean, I, I attribute most of my success to mod, just kind of looking at what she did and, and doing mm. similar behaviors. Um, I learned from her the beauty of patience. And when you're in a conflict situation, what my now favorite skill is, is to be quiet. Mm-hmm. Just to wait. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. She was masterful at saying, no, we don't have to say anything. We don't have to defend ourselves. We can just wait and watch and see what happens. And the longer you wait, the more things kind of work themselves out. And you look really smart because you didn't do a darn thing. It's remarkable. (laughs) Yeah. Alex and I have talked about that, actually. The power of the pregnant pause. (laughs) It's a beautiful thing. I am not good at it. (laughs) I know. It is very, very hard to just say something and then just wait and see because it doesn't, it really actually does not take long for the other person to want to fill the space, right. to fill the silence. Um, but it does take enormous patience of the, on the part of the person that's invoking the silence to just remain there. Um, but it, it like to Robin, to your point, I've had so many instances, personal and professional, where I've said I've said my piece and then just stopped and have just let it sit. And it like you said, it just kind of works out in your favor and you look super smart by just not saying anything. It's and it's incredible. so respectful to the yes. other person. It's just, it's kind of a it's kind of a difficult thing to do to someone else, but it's also respectful. Like that's it. That's all I got. Right. I want to hear you. I want you to digest that. Yeah. And when you're ready, you can respond. <laughs> I think I use this quote on every podcast and Alex, you could probably confirm that, but um, my favorite line and it's pinned on the top of my Twitter profile is no is a full sentence or a complete mm. sentence, right? Mm-hmm. Like you do not owe anybody an explanation for why you don't have time for something or don't have space for something or whatever that is. Like if you say no, particularly like when you're talking about people's request of your time, um, like, Hey, do you want to go out to get drinks on Friday? The whole team's going out and you can just say, no, thank you. Like you don't have to say no, you know, my daughter is, Mm -hmm. she's got a basketball game or else I'd really, I'd really, I'd love to go, but I, you know, you could just say no. It doesn't matter why you can't go. It's just that it's not a good time for you. And that's that. a pretty beautiful thing. You yeah. know, when you think about men and women in the workplace and the dynamics between men and women, there's many studies that show when, you know, I'm in a women-filled world right now at my my store and I'm in a man-filled world in my corporate career. Um, when you it, it, 
when you put a man in an environment that's mostly women, the women behave better amongst themselves. I mean, there's statistics and facts and research that prove that women are kinder to each other when there's a man in the room than wow. when they are without the man in the room. And it's the that's same thing vice versa. We are meant to work together. We just are. I think it's an important factor. And when I look at financial services, I've had amazing women leaders and I've had amazing male leaders mm -hmm. and the ability to step back and respect the difference, understand and see the difference and to know that they're going to behave and communicate and respond differently is just it's so important. I would say one of my favorite leaders I ever worked with is at FI360, John Faustino. Now, one of the most respectful, kind human beings I've ever worked with, very smart. But, you know, at, at one point, I remember him asking me, so Robin, what is it you want to do? And I was like, I can't really tell you that. You're my boss. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but he meant it. And when I told him, he was like, all right, let's figure out how to make that happen. Wow. So that's, just being honest. Yeah. And yeah, I, I don't think that's a gender specific thing, but being authentic and honest and, and working with great people and, and spending more time with great people. Oh, it's the best part of life. Yeah. No, I, I, this goes back to the point that you made at the very beginning of this conversation, which is candor, honesty, forthright, direct, all of those things are, are things that I feel like a lot of women who I know struggle with. They struggle with articulating what it is that they want and articulating it clearly. Mm -hmm. And um, men don't seem to struggle with that as much. So you see that come up in management situations. You see that coming up in um, performance review situations, requests for salary increases. Um, you know, I've, I've worked with a couple of employees who um, from the very beginning have said, you'll always know where you stand with me. I'm not the type of person who's going to hold back. And if I think that something needs to be improved upon, we're going to yeah. talk about it and set expectations and you'll know what the next step is and all of that sort of stuff. And we've talked a lot about how do you ask for a raise? How do you ask for an increased you know, title, um, more responsibility, those sorts of things. And I've had some employees do exactly the right thing and got further along. They might not have gotten what they asked for, but they got something out of it. And they came to me with facts. They came to me with a clear purpose for why they felt that they deserved increased salary and a different title. And it, I was able to advocate for them because it was a very clear cut and dry fact, fact base. And they were very, they were very good at being direct about what it is that they wanted. And I was so proud of them for that. Yeah. I thought it was such a great thing because that, that doesn't seem to happen a lot for women or it takes a long time for them to, um, realize or, or learn the lesson about being direct and, you know, kind of knowing your worth. It's discouraged, though. I would say, like, mm -hmm. I remember in elementary school, and the world has changed dramatically. I'm 50 years old. So, you know, 35 years ago in school is not like what school is today. But I remember um, one of my teachers saying to me, good girls are quiet. Oh. Robin, you need to be quiet. Oh. I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and I was like, I'm never going to be a good girl. Like, I'm, I can't do it. I'm That's never going to be a good girl. Terrible. We could have a whole nother podcast about that. Too. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I, I think about through my path and all people have had their, their pain points and struggles, but um, 
how women have overcome the barriers, but we have to be careful not to swing the pendulum to the other side that we neglect men and put men down. We want to find Mm -hmm. the humanity in it all rather than the gender in it all. But it has taken this long to, to allow women to just be and to feel, find their voice Mm -hmm. and say, say, here's what I want. I realize that it's a starting point and we can negotiate, but here's what I want and why. We're just Mm -hmm. learning how to say that. We're just finding our voice. Yeah. No, and I think your point about men is a very good one. This isn't like, it's not binary. It's not, you know, either either men are good and empower or women are good and empower. Mm -hmm. That's just not the way it is. And our, you know, the Bridge Initiative was something that um, had to be pitched to our executive team, which is almost, or at the time, was almost exclusively men. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it honestly, it took, what, Alex, three minutes of our presentation before we saw yep. n- heads nodding. Like it was clear that they were already on board. Um, so I do feel like at FI360 in particular, we have uh, a lot of male allies, a lot of advocates on our behalf um, who are just are, are in a position where they can amplify what we're saying. Yeah. Um, and, and we're so thankful for that, right? Matt Wolnowitz, yeah. who says hello, by the way, um, oh. <laughs> uh, has been a huge and advocate. John Faustino. And John Faustino. They've both been yeah. huge advocates for the Bridge Initiative yeah, and are always looking for opportunities for us to connect with other women in the industry to share stories just like this one. Um, and I do feel like we could do it on our own, but my goodness, isn't it so much more fun and better and faster when you can do it together yes. and, and help each other along. I just feel like yes. there's so much more that comes from it when you're, when you're working together. We could get a little bit louder then, right? That's right. Oh. <laughs> Invoking oh. it. Nice. nice. <laughs> yes. So Robin, can you talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, you talked some about some mentors that you've had. What are some of the lessons that you've learned from maybe from other people or just from the work that you've been doing, whether it's through successes or failures, you know, what are some of the biggest things that you've learned throughout the course of your career? Gosh, that's hard to sum up in a sentence. Um, I think the basis of who I want to be and what I want to help other people do is do good work and good things will come. And you don't always see it immediately, but if you consistently do the right thing, do good things, do good work, and good things will come. It's just the truth. Yeah. And it feels simpler than it needs to be, but it's that is the truth. You mm-hmm. just stick with who you are at your core, the good things that you know are right. And if something, if the, if something doesn't pass the test, then pause. Yeah. You know, if it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I yeah. love that. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. And that is the culmination of working with people like Matt and, and Stacy Sandler and Anne Schleck, um, all mm-hmm. of these amazing women that have been in my life and men that have been in my life. Um, they're authentic and they're, they're going to be direct. They're going to be human. They're going to be they're going to be hard. <laughs> Let me tell yeah. you, these people are hard. They were hard on me. They expect excellence and they forgive when you don't get there and help you rise mm-hmm. up. Um, but, but they hold you accountable too. That's, yeah. that's, I love that. Yeah. Well, here's something that I, I love about you, Robin, is that, you know, we talked about how you're not a good follower. 
However, you are able to see lessons and learn things from other people. So I, th- mm-hmm. I think it's an important distinction, right? Like you don't have to be a follower to learn and to mm-hmm. have other people influence you. It's okay to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure on where to go with this, this particular project, but that person does know a little bit more yep. what they're doing. I'm going to tap them for some, some insights or some guidance or whatever. And you, you can be a leader and still have allies and, and, and partners like that in other areas of your work. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of I, I worked for a small consulting firm for a while. I ran their financial services practice for two or three years. And one of our mottos or advertisements and things we'd say is we're never going to be the smartest people in the room, but we are going to help the smartest people in the room do the right thing. I love that. And that's cool. who I, I want to be. That. You know, yeah. I, I don't yeah. need to know it all, but I'm going to find the people who do and we're going to solve this. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's, that's great. Well, I mean, everybody has strengths. Everybody has weaknesses. Yeah. And I think the strongest people are able to recognize where their weaknesses are and to ask for help in those areas. And, you know, I'm like you, I'm certainly not going to be the smartest person in the room, but, uh, I'll, I'll cozy up to those, those smart yes. people and, <laughs> yeah. and make sure that I can, uh, you know, we can work together and, and do some, do some good things. Yeah. Um, so Robin, what I, you know, we like to talk a little bit with our, um, our guests about some of the great things that they're consuming, whether it's another podcast or a book or an article or a study. Is there anything that you have consumed? And I say consume because honestly, my husband doesn't read books, but he consumes books mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, he doesn't feel, he doesn't feel like he should say that he reads them. So I'm like, that's fair enough. So um, have you consumed anything lately that you found in, in, in particular powerful or insightful or something that just really resonated with you lately? So I have been reading a series of books. Well, first of all, my sons, both my 14-year-old and my 24-year-old gave me the series of Outlander. Ah, which is borderline porn. (laughs) 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 But I I am reading those. It's taken me um, about three quarters of the way through one, the first book, and it's been three months, so I'm slowly reading that. But I did read The Anatomy of Peace from the Arbinger Mm -hmm. Institute and then Leadership and Self-Deception, How to Get Out of the Box. Um, Both Mm -hmm. of those books are really about... um, realizing your own truths inside and how you deceive yourself to always perceive yourself as right or better than you are and being open to the concept that maybe I'm wrong. What if I'm wrong? Interesting. Mm-hmm. What, what if I don't have the answer? And is that okay? Am I okay as a human being if I don't have all the answers? That's hard. Yeah. We want to. We want to I would say my favorite book I've ever read, and it's pretty relevant to what we're talking about, is Pope Joan. Have you guys read Pope Joan? No, yes. I have not. I have. Oh, so it's by Donna Wolfolk Cross, and it is a historical novel. It's fiction, but it's based on truth. And it's about a woman who supposedly accidentally became Pope. She had portrayed herself as a man and rose in the ranks of the church. And she ended up giving birth in the street during a parade. And oh my they gosh. found out she was mm-hmm. not a man. It's just an impactful, yeah. 
impressive story of a woman's perseverance in a man's world. So fascinating. Wow. It is. It's a it's a really interesting historical fiction book. Yeah, my favorite. All time. Every woman should read it. Oh, I'll put it on my list. <laughs> That's amazing. Um well, thank you for sharing. That's I love getting new. This is definitely helpful for me. I have my 2020 list set, but I'm hoping to, <laughs> Alex knows this, I'm hoping to yeah. get through that list quickly and I'm looking for stuff to tack on to the end. So um, Pope, Pope Jones? Pope Joan. Pope Joan, like J-O-A-N. Yep. Got it. Awesome. Well, so Alex, do you have some articles for us to play our little game? <laughs> I do indeed. Yay! So, Robin, I think that we talked a little bit about this, but we we like to do a fun little game where Alex is going to read some headlines for us, and you and I get to guess whether or not it's true or fiction. All right. So, Alex, yes. give us give us the goods. Let's go through some articles and see if we can, or some headlines, and see if we can guess true truth or fiction. All right, good luck, because I upped my game, I think, on this one. Oh, man, I'm nervous now. All right, so our first one is guard alligator named El Chompo found protecting a fentanyl and heroin stash. <laughs> that feels very true to me. It does feel true. <laughs> it is true, and then it, what makes it even better is that this came out of Pennsylvania. What? Oh, you've got to be kidding Yes. Me. I yeah. thought for sure it was this Florida is, man. No. No. Uh, no. This is um, Chester County, Pennsylvania. Uh, obviously, the the alligator's uh, nickname is uh, a nod to El Chapo. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Mexican drug lord. Yes. And uh, authorities discovered this uh, three-foot juvenile alligator during a raid. And they said they the, this article was actually pretty hilarious. They said the reptile is making rounds in the smuggler's kitchen. And the the district the the Chester County District Attorney said, quote, quite frankly, as we can tell from these drug dealers, the alligator may have been the brains of the operation. <laughs> well done. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> That's fantastic. The big surprise right. there that it was um in Pennsylvania. I mean, my goodness. I know. Yep. I was like, I have to include this. Yes. <laughs> it's required. And for anybody uh, who's listening who doesn't know, FI360 is headquartered in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which, you know, yes. gives us a little bit of a close-to-home feel on Pennsylvania articles. Yes. All right. <clears throat> Here's your second one. All right. Russia held first-ever competitive slapping contest. <laughs> I'm sorry. I could just envision a competitive slapping contest, and it looks hilarious. I don't know if that's do true think? or not. I can't I figure it out. I will tell you the reason why I hesitate is my brothers. When I was when I was little, we had um, my youngest brother is seven years younger than me, and he was eight years younger than my older brother. And he would come up when he was two or three years old. He'd come up to my older brother and say, "Darren, slap me up so I can laugh." And he would slap his face back and forth. <laughs> and he loved it. And he would giggle and laugh. Um, so, you know, slapping contest seems real to me. <laughs> yeah. I feel so like saying yes. I'm going to say yes. Yeah. 
It is true. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, but here's what makes it even a little bit better is that the the like subtext on the title said and a giant named Dumpling dominated. <laughs> so I I actually knew this because my best friend's husband he showed me videos on YouTube about this competition. And oh my it gosh! Was terrifying to watch. <laughs> I wonder what the rules are. There have to be rules. Oh, there right? are rules. Yes. Oh there my are. goodness! I just went out to there YouTube to rules? look. I couldn't help myself. Yep. <laughs> Uh, enjoy that so uh it's basically they're competing to deliver the hardest slap and who could take the (laughs) it's like who the last man standing wins so is there a woman version of this competition (laughs) (laughs) ridiculous there's not it's just men Hmm, interesting i mean it is the first year give give them a second i'm sure women will want to right (laughs) <laughs> wow all right good good find alex um all right so next one let's see okay so pensioner opens up stuffed animal zoo a pensioner yeah like a, a retired person yeah opens mm. up a stuffed animal zoo I mean, Stella would love that. <laughs> that feels like something Stella would do. <laughs> I feel like she could, she could make that happen. Yeah, she could definitely make that happen just in our house. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to say false. Okay. It's fictional. Well, you know, I think it's false if it's just for the purpose of being a zoo. But I think that would be a great business model to actually mm-hmm. sell stuffed animals, a stuffed animal zoo where you could come in and see the animals in natural habitat and then buy them before you leave. I'm going to say yes. It is true. Uh, this is in uh, Slovakia. This was a retired uh, construction worker and a grandfather that um, the idea behind this uh, menagerie basically sprang from uh, his reluctance to get rid of his adult children's teddy bears. So he has this small um, public garden near his house that they, there's like 70 toy animals that that's like a lion and an elephant and a snake and a dinosaur and monkeys and teddy bears. And uh, the zoo is, is, has this um, claim to fame as having no cages, fences, entry fees, or closing hours. <laughs> it's quite the business model. Right. Nice. <laughs> it's like a community service. Yeah, like yeah. the like the tiny libraries or whatever those yep. are called. Yeah. Yeah. I love those libraries. I do too. All right. Here is I think this is number four. Yes. Um we'll do maybe two more. Um Japan held a running competition to make babies cry. Oh my. I'm gonna say fiction. Why would you make babies cry? It is funny to watch babies cry, but it's not nice. <laughs> not when they're your own, right? Right. Or to make own. them cry. Oh, I, I hope it's not true. I'm going to say no. It is true. Oh. They, they have been doing this apparently for 400 years. Oh, my. Um, it's a 
Nakazumo Crying Baby Festival, it's held to celebrate the belief that crying babies bring good health and fortune, as well as ward off evil spirits. Interesting. So to, to top off all of this hilarity, right, every crying baby is paired with a giant sumo wrestler. <laughs> given the task to hold the, the crying baby. And and they 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 try to like goad these babies into crying. Um oh. because the first baby to cry wins, basically. So they uh they chant like cry, cry to the baby in their face. Um, or they wear a mask, um, <sighs> like one of the evil spirits. Um, but yeah, they sometimes they like gently jiggle the baby up and down. Um but okay. yeah, it, it I thought that was crazy yeah it's crazy now i just went out and looked at pictures of that and i have to say these babies crying faces are beautiful <laughs> just, i love their little mad faces all that rage way to and look anger. at it they're just beautiful i'll tell you what when stella was a baby if i had put her in any stranger's arms it would not have taken her long to start getting upset yeah. <laughs> like i have pictures of my dad dressed up as santa and she was three months old at the time and at first she looks pretty okay with it but you could see she's kind of like what is this thing and very confused (laughs) and it did I mean it was maybe 30 to 45 seconds and she was like "Uh uh-uh get me off of this guy's lap this is just weird (laughs) so my second child um had really good mad face he and I took a picture of him crying when he was maybe eight months old and he, he just he had such a great mad face he was big tears pouring down and I used that as his birthday invite for his first birthday to our family <laughs> saying I'm gonna be so sad if you don't come to my party and he was just so cute he had the cutest little crying face <laughs> didn't make him cry he just did yeah it was all natural <laughs> yes all natural <laughs> all, right, all right last one ready here we go Okay. South Koreans fake their funerals for life lessons. Oh, that's bizarre. See, this feels true now. (laughs) Everything's been true. (laughs) So when I was in college, they made us write our own obituary to think about who we want to be and how we want to live our life. Yeah. You you had to write your own obituary because you're thinking about the end and how you're going to live until you get there. So I think I it's true. Do that. It is true. Wow. It is true. They mm-hmm. they have more than 20, 25,000 people who have participated in these like mass living funeral services at a healing center in South Korea. Um, and they they basically hope to improve their lives by simulating their deaths. And um, hundreds of people have taken a... Um, Part in these from like teenagers all the way up to uh, retirees, um, you know, a little elderly people. I don't know, practicing maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, they don shrouds. They take funeral portraits. They pen their last testaments, and they lie in a closed coffin for like about ten minutes. No, thank you. Right? So here's yeah, what I no. think about that. <laughs> I'm so fascinated by it, which makes me weird. I get that, but I think that there's such a innate human fear of death Mm. but the fact is we're all gonna die Mm -hmm. none of us are getting out of this alive and to really think about that in shaping who you want to be and how you want to live your life I think could be incredibly impactful I'm for it I think it's 
it's a good thing. It might be very morbid and strange, but it really helps you get to the point of who you want to be. Well, that is true. Although I will yeah. say, Robin, you're completely forgetting about the fact that I will get bitten by a vampire and will live forever. But that's just, I mean, that's okay. You, you, you're just ignoring the whole vampire species. It's all right. Yes. The vampire species, as well as the sort of robot species where your brain gets downloaded into a robot and you get to live forever, which is what my oldest son truly believes is going to happen to him. Also viable. (laughs) (laughs) But I, you know, I don't disagree with you. I I do think it's good to um, acknowledge death and that it's going to come and like, how are we going to approach it and kind of making peace with the idea that life does end because it is scary. I mean, when I was younger, I was very scared of dying. I'm not ready to die by any means, but I'm not as afraid of it as I was when I was a child. So I think kind of coming to terms with the finality of life is a, it's all a good thing. I draw the line at laying in a coffin. For yeah, I you're right. <laughs> I mean, can't do that. That's a little too real for me. I mean, have you seen Kill Bill 2? It's just very terrifying. <laughs> yeah, but if you're <laughs> going to be a vampire, that might be how you roll. That is true. I might, yeah. <laughs> like literally how I roll through life is in a coffin during the day. That's true. <laughs> oh my goodness. Alex, thank you. Those, those headlines were thought provoking at least <laughs> and, and, all a true. Little, and a little and scary because they were true. Um, yeah. So Robin, anything else that we didn't cover that you want to make sure that we touch on um, while we're, while we have time today? Well, in the realm of financial services, because I am a nerd on the topic and I love the retirement plan marketplace, I, you know, we talked early on about how do you draw lessons learned from the early part of your career into the later part of your career. When I had my first HR job, it was at a manufacturing company, and I would go around to the seven different plants where these people were making minimum wage, and it was when 401k plans were new, and I was trying to encourage them to sign up for the 401k plan. We needed to have them sign up because the owner and his sons wanted to participate. And as you know, there are rules on participation. You can't just be for the benefit of the executives and family members. Mm -hmm. So it was really important for me to get these, you know, low income earners to participate in a 401k. And what struck me as interesting, and this goes right to being a fiduciary, is that as I went around to all these plants and talked to these men who cut coupons, they knew how much money they had budgeted for their beer on Friday night. And if they had any extra money, they were probably saving it towards a new truck or a used truck, um, really cutting corners. Um, When I would talk about the 401k plan, the first thing they would say is, how much does it cost? And at that time, in the early part of the retirement plan market, um, 401k plans were presented as free. It doesn't cost you anything. The employer pays for it and they contribute to it. So it's it's no cost to you. And they all just kind of looked at me with their head tilted sideways and they were smarter than that. There's no way Uh it's free. And to this day, we've, we've had fiduciary rulings. We've had things come out to, to better disclose fees, which is, in my opinion, the right answer. And just, again, being honest and straightforward is, yes, it's going to cost you. And in the end, it's going to be for your benefit. And here's how. Mm-hmm. Always works better than trying to bury the fees and hide fees. So I'm, I'm proud of our industry and where it's come over the last 25 years. And I, I love financial services. I do. Well, I can't think of a better note to end on. Yeah. That was really perfect. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Thank you, Robin. Thank so you, Robin. Here. This was so fun. More fun than I expected. You guys are <laughs> awesome. 
Thank you for spending your time with us. Again, this is a little louder now by the Bridge Initiative. Thank you to Robin Green for this great conversation. If you have questions, topic ideas, or if you'd like to join the Bridge Initiative community, email us at bridge at fi360.com. You can also support the podcast without spending a dime by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we want you all to get a little louder now.